Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Scott, how are you doing today? Well, I'm okay. And you? I'm doing fine. Good. Uh, we had we had a great idea. I had a great idea for an episode to uh, continue with. I've been reading... Yes, you did. Reading <laughs> yes, some Aquinas, <laughs> and I had an idea, and you said... We got to do something stop different. Stop the presses. We got to do something different. And I'm just going to interrupt before he even tells you you what it is. And I'm just going to say, listener, you can thank me. And he's going to queue it up for next time, but you'll have to come back because I'll do everything I can (laughs) to get us on something Just avoiding. (laughs) Avoiding entirely. Because it just seems like what he wants to talk about is like way over my head. So I don't know about that. So I don't even know what it is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. So you, you you wanted to talk about something else. What was that something, and and why did that something come up? Well, I um, I have been reading a couple books. One's called A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood. It's a good title. Because everyone needs reading like that. The Bible and the Civil War is the subtitle. The other book is Sacred Scripture, Sacred War, The Bible and the American Revolutionary War. Both of those books are by James P. Byrd. And I got those because one of you know, my interest in in City on the Hill and in what we're doing here is uh, how the church engages um, public life and how we engage politics. And these two books are like right down the center on the history of the mm-hmm. American church engaging with the scriptures, the world in which they lived. Right. And I'm going to say, first of all, I'm not anywhere near done with these. Partly because... But it's already episode-worthy, folks. Here I'm going to just tip my hand. I start cringing and shaking before I can complete very much. It's amazing. So you're cringing and shaking. I, I don't. Maybe all the listeners have had this experience of reading a book and wanting to throw it across the room. Is that the type of cringing and shaking or... Because it is. the writer was just so so bad or unhelpful, or was it something in the book? Well, it was several quotes in the book, and the way that the book was analyzing uh, the use of the Bible in the Civil War and in the Revolutionary War. Those were, I mean, that's essentially the, the thrust okay. of the book. And so the way that the church was using the uh, scriptures to justify both of those wars was, uh, it just was kind of beyond what I could stomach, really. Um, like you, you knew they did some hermeneutical gymnastics, but you, well, it was, it was just, far more than you expected. Well, I love, I mean, I love the Bible and I love uh, the church. And, you know, it's things like, let me see where, um, where is it? It's um, as Harry Stout uh, has observed, historians have largely overlooked the symbiotic relationship between religion and war throughout American history. 
as Stout argues, American wars are sacred wars, and American religion, with some notable exceptions, is martial at its ver- at the very core of its being. America's wars became sacred largely with the help of Scripture. Interesting. And so what the, the premise of both of these books is that it was the use of the Scripture by, largely by the clergy that inflamed Americans to rebel against Britain and inflamed the North against the South and South against the North, mm. all using uh, the Scripture. So... Anyway, that's why it just is, yeah, it's all I can. And that argument is that there's something unique about America and its relationship with, one, war, and two, religion in general. It's a symbiotic relationship, which is not, I I would guess the argument is that that's not typical for other countries. No, no, I would say, and that one quote went on to say that the Bible is America's book. Mm. You know, that was sort of the premise, and so... Anyway, the the prospect that uh, you would use the scripture in that way is just you know, number one. It reminds me of what we went through in 2020 mm-hmm. and uh, all of the things that were causing us so much problem, and people were just doing things with the scriptures, and how the church found those things so confusing. That is part of the reason that it just gives me a visceral reaction to it because. Right. And I'm even shaking the table as we're talking <laughs> because that that's what I felt like I experienced. And then th- that's not at all what I experienced in the scriptures. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, I'm committed to uh, doing my best to, to, when I open the scripture, to find out what it says. Mm-hmm. First of all, what it said in its time. And then how does that, uh, in, from the context that they had to the context that I have, what kind of bridge can I come across that gives it meaning uh, for me in my time? And the, the prospect that it, the scripture would be used as an agent to, you know, of something greater like a revolution or a civil war is really stressful to me. So anyway, those are a few things that uh, kind of got me a little worked up or a lot worked up. Yeah, yeah, not a little bit, a lot. So where where does this start? Um, if if in fact America has this kind of symbiotic relationship, that didn't just come out of whole cloth. What why what preceded either war to uh, put that on the forefront of the way people are thinking or the way they're willing to listen? Well, it, it I'll let me say it this way: it started with "City on a Hill," not the podcast, but the sermon. Really, I mean the Winthrop sermon. <laughs> where we got the name of our podcast because um, that was the view that uh, the pilgrims had as they came over. They were Mm -hmm. going to leave England that had, uh, you know, oddly, what, you know, all the voices I hear say, oh, we need more religion Mm -hmm. in our public square. I mean, they were, they had an established religion. They Mm -hmm. had more than we've ever had. Right. And now people are saying, oh, if only we could go back there. And anyway, all of it just, gets me a little worked up but um it started with the the vision that we were going to you know come across the ocean and start uh, essentially start a new israel or start a new uh work of god over here mm-hmm. and that it was we were going to you know bleed that right into our uh 
into our government and the way that we ran things. And so that's some of it. I mean, in 1777, for example, Cyprian Strong of Chatham, Connecticut. Anyway, Cyprian Strong in 1777, for example, Chris Cyprian Strong of Chatham, Connecticut assumed, and these are, this is his quote, there is no one, I trust, whose mind is not at once struck with the description of Israel as being the most perfect resemblance of these American colonies, almost as much so as if spoken with a primary reference to them. <laughs> now, you laugh, but, but that understanding that we would become the new Israel, that somehow God's chosen people were now landing on these shores and establishing uh, a new promised land, was very much a real... Mm -hmm. Uh, belief. Well, I laugh for two reasons. One, the end, and, it, and as if spoken with a primary reference to them. So that's just, it's just a bad hermeneutic to start off with. If you're reading and going, ah, this, this description of Israel in the Old Testament, several thousand years, several old. thousand years old, seems to have a primary reference to these new colonies in the 1700s. That's just ridiculous. Uh, but then at the, the beginning of the quote, I also think it's interesting. He says, there is no one I trust whose mind is not at once struck with the description of Israel. He is a priori before any other considerations saying, I'm going to trust you if this is your interpretation. Well, I think what he's saying is the soup that we all swim in here in 1777 is the, the belief that, yes, in fact, we are the new Israel. That, that the words of the scripture about Israel speak to the American colonies. In other words, I think what he's doing is assuming that he's not alone in that opinion. Right. No the, doubt about that. Yeah. And when he's not alone in that opinion, that is, you know, the, the fact that that flavored the pulpits throughout new England, one of the things right. that the book says is that there were more sermons preached in 1776 than there were in any other year in the American colonies. In other words, mm. people were looking for all kinds of opportunities mm -hmm. to use the Bible to fire people up about right. the, the war. And, well, so, and can you go back a little bit further? Why? I mean, we could go preach a bunch of sermons in a political context now, but it probably wouldn't have, the amount of authority that it seemed to have in 1776. What about everything preceding that? Why would people care to have the Bible as an authority? There's, well, there's city on a hill, but was there anything else between? Yeah, no, I went, I went all the way back and got stuck, which <laughs> is what happens to me in this book. Um, <laughs> between the city on a hill and the uh, Revolutionary War was the First Great Awakening. And the First Great Awakening did a couple different things, and we talked about it on here before, and maybe mm -hmm. should link, I should link to that episode. Well, we, we had Todd Miles on as well. Right, that's, yeah. that's when we talked about it, was the, the, the prospect that, that the First Great Awakening did a couple things. I mean, there was, a, there was a genuine religious fervor and conversion, for sure. So we're grateful for that, mm -hmm. grateful for the voices that uh, we have heard from there. The, the, the thing that is quite uh, unnerving though, and you don't really think about it, partly because we're from a free church background. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think about it. They, uh, the, the thrust behind the Great Awakening happened in large measure outside the local church. Uh, George Whitfield was uh, preaching in fields, 
because the established um, uh, Anglican church wouldn't have him. Mm. And the crowds were too big for the buildings, mm-hmm. but he, but in other words, he circumvented the institutional church mm-hmm. and that, that uh, he did it, you know, partly prag- because of pragmatics, but partly because they wouldn't have him. And so there was this anti-authoritarian uh, flavor, you might say a subtext to mm. the uh, first great awakening that, that then all those converts and all those churchmen uh, after the fact kept that. Right. And they were sort of set up then to be anti-authoritarian toward their government, which at the time was Britain, was uh, mm-hmm. British. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that it did was that uh, it made, it, it became about uh, personal conversion. Even the, I mean, the pastors and the theologians were asking questions, is this a genuine revival and are these people genuinely converted? Mm-hmm. And it became about personal conversion. And we're grateful for that. I mean, I want to be personally converted right. myself and I want other people to be. That's part of what it means to be evangelical. Just that distinctive. Yeah, but that personal conversion, and, and that comes from the Great Awakening, actually, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because that wasn't a, the same kind of an issue before. But then uh, when it becomes about my personal conversion and my, you know, my thing, number one, I am outside of a community of faith. I am outside of a community of faith, then it helps me interpret the Scripture. Mm-hmm. And when I go to the Scripture, I go to it with my own personal convictions and my own personal perspective, and that becomes, in many cases, authoritative. Right. And so the authority then is not doesn't rest squarely with the Scriptures as they've been viewed for thousands of years. It rests in my opinion about the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. And I say that because that, for me, is a little bit of a an issue for for our day. A and, little bit. <laughs> okay, it's an issue for our day. Yeah. Um, because well, and it, I'd say any day, really. It, it is. This is not unique to 1776 or to now. It's become. It became more of a thing, mm-hmm. really. I mean, we did. We talked about Roger Williams before. Between Roger Williams and this, it with the Enlightenment and right. John Locke and. Uh, well, there's a lot of echoes of that, like what I think about something. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That, that all happened in this time frame. Right. So betw- really between uh, Roger Williams and this, it became that, that individualism and mm-hmm. the, the, uh, what are, the rise of the individual so that then that's – and we still have that. We still have that now. The, the, my individual perspective on this is more important than mm-hmm. the group or the community. And so – I think that's a that's an issue, and so that uh, that's where we kind of get this sort of weird amalgam of scriptural interpretation that enables people to talk about the um, the scripture being a a book of war, and uh, you know one of the things here's another. I mean, this is gives you some of a perspective of what's going on. Um, he said. Clergy fed the frenzy of anarchy into such political enthusiasm that in the minds of the most pious men seemed to be wholly absorbed in the temper of riot. Oliver even pointed to one minister who called the people to fight up to your knees in blood. That's a good normal Sunday sermon. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I know there are some weird things preached these days. <laughs> But I, I mean, I, I hope I don't ever see a YouTube video of somebody preaching a sermon like that. Right. But nonetheless, that's, that's what we're talking about. Is this, you know, my passion at the moment as a minister is this revolution. So fight opportunities and blood. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's how it is in Revelation. And there you go. And anyway, it just that, that I find that treatment of the scriptures to be very stressful. Let me just say it that way. Well, and I, it's stressful, yes, especially if you're reading it, and there's other examples here that I'm sure you can read as we go, but it's also just the wrong way to read Scripture. You're, you're making Scripture the servant of the desired end of the state instead of me coming to Scripture saying, what, what does this say? Just as you were talking about trying to figure out what does this actually say, so if I'm going to preach it or teach it or, or um, communicate it, I want to make sure I know what it says before I speak. This posture and we've seen it in our own day as well, is, hey, I can use this book for my own ends. How can I, how can I read this in a way that's helpful to me? Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like, based on your, your quotes, that it wasn't just a conniving, like, oh, how do I do this? It was just so in the stream that, of course, we read the Bible this way. Well, see, that, I th- yes, I think that is the thing that stresses me out the most, is because there, the lack of historical perspective, the lack of self-awareness, the lack of the fact that I'm actually doing this and I don't even recognize it, mm-hmm. that to me is stressful because I think I think we have people doing that now. Right. I'm, if, I'm afraid I do it, you know, mm-hmm. too often, probably. And that is just, I see what I see and therefore I hold forth. And here we've got much more extreme probably than anything mm-hmm. I've ever said up to your knees and blood. I, I have, I've been safe distance. You've from said that. ankles before. But. I've been a safe distance <laughs> from that. At least 18 inches. I know, but it's, um, yeah, this is, this is the kind of thing that if people aren't self-aware, if we're not, re- if we don't have a disciplined approach to scripture and those sorts of things, we get caught up in, uh, the, the voices of our day and see, I think it's even, it's maybe harder for us to know what's for them because we have, you know, news channels that give us what we're supposed to say or the, the literally the party line. Mm. And then that's, that shapes the preacher, that shapes the Bible interpreter. And then we go to the Bible to find something that would support the party line. And, and because we've got media and we've got TV and we've got internet that they didn't have then, it's easier for us to read into the scriptures what we want it to say or think it should say than it was for them. The, the interesting thing about this, and part of the reason it's so stressful is for me, is that uh, they didn't have any of that. Mm. And so the way that the, the word, the, literally the, the biblical word got out was only from the pulpit. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, he makes the, the case in this book that, um, especially in the Revolutionary War time, the, the pulpit was more powerful than the pamphlet. We, mm. you know, we have read... We would never say that now. No, no, definitely not now. But the, it's certainly not more powerful than the internet or whatever you might say, the right? The pulpit's more powerful <clears throat> than Twitter. But, but we are familiar from our American history with the pamphlets, with Common Sense mm-hmm. and with mm-hmm. the Federalist Papers, with other pamphlet-type things that were circulated to whip people into a frenzy. And his claim is that the clergy were more so 
mm. than the pamphlets. In fact, his argument in here is that some of the force of Thomas Paine's, um, he, was not a, he was not a friend of Christianity, mm-hmm. but some of the force of that pamphlet was it sounded like a sermon mm. to people. And so it had a sermon, it had biblical references, it had biblical allusions, and it sounded like a sermon to people, and they resonated with it, and they identified it then as God's cause. Mm. And again, it's just the here you have the the culture shaping the way the Bible is understood. And anyway, so you can say I'm getting fired up about it again. Well, it, as <laughs> you said that, it kind of makes me wonder if. So the pamphlets, Federalist Papers, or whatever, people who are engaging intellectual things are probably reading those and talking about them with each other and debating them, whatever. It seems more like the the preachers may have been more the leaders. This is callous language, but like the leaders of the mob. Like we can we can, um, uh, in in not enrage but um, embolden just the, the more populist side of it and get a bunch of the, a more wide comprehensive um, comprehensive uh, list of people, not just the people who would read the two, the hundred page pamphlet. Not everyone reads the hundred page pamphlet, but it seems like we can get way more people if we got the preachers going, Hey, let's go this way. Especially if you're attaching God's cause to it or scripture yeah. to it. Oh, definitely. I mean, his, his, Analysis of it, clear, this, I read this a minute ago, clergy fed the frenzy of anarchy. The mm-hmm. frenzy. Yes, the clergy were yep. responsible. And so so all that to say, this individual reading of Scripture, the, the merging of Israel with the American colonies, and then the, the other thing that happened uh, a, a lot then was the... Um, the understanding that your, uh, well, I would say your eschatology, they would say the um, apocalypse or the uh, end of the world was happening at the time of the revolution. All of this was bringing the world to its end and climax. I mean, they were, I mean, part of this was theological. They were post-millennial. They were bringing in the kingdom Mm-hmm. But then when it was so cataclysmic, then they did understand it to be this way. This is um, <clears throat> this is a quote, again, from the book. It just said, The American Revolution, Sherwood believed, was a climactic event in the apocalyptic scenario. And the American cause was the cause of Christ against the tyrannical influences of Antichrist. Now, you could pull that sentence out and talk about virtually any... Uh, period of time in American history, mm-hmm. whether it was a Cold War, whether See, that was, sounds like now. What are you talking about? Or now, or any of those things, right? And so, it was a climactic event in apocalyptic scenario. The, the great cause, the American cause, was the cause of Christ against tyrannical influences of the Antichrist. God Almighty, with all the powers of heaven, are on our side. Sherwood preached. Great numbers of angels, no doubt, are encamping round our coast for our defense and protection. Michael stands ready with the artillery of heaven to encounter the dragon and to vanquish this black host. Now, the language there, of course, is right out of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And I would just challenge 
readers to say, is that really what Revelation was saying? Clearly, the end of, didn't come back then, so the answer is no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is just, um, you know, to, to recognize that that, to, that what this person is doing is drawing that biblical language mm-hmm. and completely turning it upside down and saying it doesn't apply to the persecution of the church or to the anything like it probably does in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And instead, it applies to America. Well, and, and the dragon in this scenario would be... Britain. Britain. Right. That has an established church. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and then, but, but he does that, see, again, on good historical grounds, because the, the Protestant Reformation understood the Antichrist to be the Catholic established church. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this history. Yeah, he's walking in footsteps. Yeah, but but we've got this history then of a religious government <laughs> being the Antichrist by the people that don't like him, and then it repeating. And, and, it, and it does sound like things we hear mm-hmm. now. I mean, we know. Yeah, we, I only have snarky comments to this being the same. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't you know, and I, it's all I can do to resist that because you see the same thing playing out now. Mm-hmm. People looking for uh, America in prophecy and mm-hmm. having prophecy conferences that say what is going to happen with us and who then is the Antichrist and mm-hmm. all the things that are not there. But we, we, but we too have a long heritage of thinking they're there Right. thinking they're on our side. So it's very easy. In fact, it's very hard to say otherwise. I'm just going to say it's hard to say otherwise because mm. people will push back and say, but what about, but what about America? Yeah. But what about um, how evil the other guys are? You know, right. the, the American cause is the cause of Christ against tyrannical influences of the Antichrist. But what about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, and so it is very hard. And I'm just going to say this started early. Mm-hmm. This this was this was what was coming out of the pulpits at the, during the time of the Revolutionary War, and their use of the scripture and the use of the uh, uh, revelation and the apocalyptic language to get us there was was very very you know effective. That's one. Mm-hmm. That's the argument of the book is yeah. that it's an effective way to marshal a nation to war. When I would you, you challenge the listeners to uh, go back and see if it says that, and I, I think challenging anyone to read the Bible is very helpful. But I would caution us—not uh, caution us, but realize because we've been doing this for so long, you really have to swim upstream for a while to get to okay, what does this actually say? Because you have so many th- assumptions in your head um, of poor ways of interpreting Scripture that we've been doing now for four hundred years. Um, that mm-hmm. if, oh, I, I'm going to read Revelation or I'm going to read whatever, um, some of your go-to assumptions are going to be probably in, in, inaccurate because we are, are practiced as an American church to read the Bible in a way that is America-centric, and the Bible is not about America. <laughs> the Bible is about Jesus. Well, America-centric, I mean, let's, let's go back to you were asking me about explanations individual-centric, number mm-hmm. one. That too, yep. Then number two, America-centric. And um, yeah, we have to really figure out, is that what we should be, you know, the way we should be reading the Bible? So 
so <laughs> this is just the first book. I'm not, I'm not through either one of them. This is just a Revolutionary War book, Sacred Scripture, Sacred War. I haven't even gotten started on the Civil War book. Maybe we want to put that off. It got off. better, right? Maybe we want to put that off till another episode. But that is, um, it's so far out there, the way people are using Scripture then, that you wouldn't even, you, you recognize this. I think I, I mm -hmm. recognize these undertones of Americanism in the right. way people read Scriptures. I recognize that. I've seen that. I've seen people use you know, promises to Israel and mm -hmm. apply it to America. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that. I've seen the Antichrist be a different political power, you know, power. I've seen those things. I've, I've not seen the same level of thing in the Civil War with um, slavery and the way that it's used to mm. justify that level of evil. Um, so I haven't really seen the way it's used in Civil War. So you, so you want to do a part two? Is that what you want? You know, you're so fired I, up. I'm not. I, I'm not only going to let you not talk about this next episode, but two episodes. Oh, if we do now. another episode, it puts off that other thing, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I it um, it might be better. All right, we, we can we can do a part two. But so I'm a listener. I just listen to you be frustrated about people interpreting and in, interpreting scripture in 1776 and just a bunch of clergy enraging the mob. What do I do? What what okay. what is the takeaway? Why one? What should I do tomorrow about the way I read the Bible? But what uh, what should I do in response to poor interpretation from three hundred years ago? Well, the first thing I'm, I would say is read your Bible. I mean, and don't you don't heard, say, you heard it here first, folks? That's Perfect. right. Don't say, "Oh dear," you know, they misunderstood it. Other people misunderstand it. Nobody mm -hmm. can understand it. That's not true. So read your Bible. The, the second thing I would say is that uh, it's the Bible doesn't mean something new to you that it didn't mean to the people that received it in the first place. And so what did it mean to them is your really your first question. Mm -hmm. And it needs to land in a way that makes sense to their situation. Mm -hmm. You know, Revelation, for instance, is, was written to be read verbally to a church that was persecuted. And it was a letter to be circulated among churches in um, Turkey, and they were to they were to read it out loud. And the images that were there were to remind them that yes, in fact, the the government or the Rome might be coming after Christians. It wasn't about somebody else against Rome. They weren't taking the side of one government against another. It was against the Church of Jesus Christ. And the story of Revelation is how to endure persecution mm. not because you're american or but because uh of the sake of the the death burial and resurrection of jesus and there's hope wrapped <clears throat> up in there because you belong to the coming king jesus well that's what revelation yeah. about is yeah, to hope. give you that hope right. yeah yep. and so you read it for what it was written for mm -hmm. um and you recognize you you know you go back and you read promises a covenant maybe made to Israel, and that was made to Israel. Is that was that made to anybody outside of Israel? No, it wasn't. And um, how did people then get the benefit of that covenant by per, by faith in the God of Israel, Yahweh? And they ended up having to join Israel mm -hmm. until they were exiled, and then until the Messiah came, and there was a new covenant ratified in the blood of Jesus. 
God makes promises. Mm-hmm. He does. He's made a new covenant, a new promise to those who believe in Jesus and who belong to him and, and who are the beneficiaries of his righteousness uh, for which he shed his blood. And then you participate in the new covenant, not mm-hmm. in the old covenant that has to do with the land and all those things, but in the new covenant. And so you, you, you have to be thoughtful about where you are in history, where those promises were or those words to Israel were in history. And so those are some of the governors. And I think the other thing I would say, so what did it mean to them? Where was it in history? And then I think I would say, have your eyes up and see what other people are doing with the scriptures. And are they, are they, when they talk about scriptures, can you draw a direct line from Mm. what they're saying to what is actually there? Mm -hmm. And, And that's not an easy line to draw. I mean, I just preached on the on the Psalms the other day, and one of them was the king was pledging himself to be morally pure, which is all great. That doesn't mean that I take this now personally to be um, my covenant, personal covenant of moral purity. Mm. So I read it individually because that's mm-hmm. one of our mistakes, right? Yeah, we're always going to do that. My what, what I do mean to me is I put it back in history and say this is the king of Israel the one that all Israel needed and longed for, pledging himself to be the right kind of king. And that's all the psalm was. What turns out over history, he failed. Mm-hmm. But that points us then to a different king, King Jesus, who was that kind of king. And so r- reading the scripture uh, for what it was, not for what I want it to be or need it to be, again, individually, mm-hmm. that will really help uh, avoid these wrong interpretations. So... Anyway, there's more to be said. That's maybe why we're going to do another part. Yeah. <laughs> but those are some things as you read the Bible that will kind of help keep you out of American ditches, shall we say. Right. America, American ditch on the left and individualist ditch on the right. There you go. And I, I just want to point out, you, you kind of laid out a bunch of stuff there um, organizationally that you know because you've read the Bible a lot and for a lot of years. And I just want to encourage listeners that there's not, you don't have to go get a bunch of special books to read the Bible and go, oh, here's the key to doing, mm-hmm. uh, understanding this Bible or this this scripture or this passage. Uh, a lot of what Scott just said is because he, he knows it because he's just read the Bible a lot. And if you um, just read it and read it slowly and just keep going, you're going to notice those connections. It wasn't like, Scott, that you just, what was it, Psalm 101 and, oh, there's a connection to Jesus over here. Like, no, that's not from a special book. That's because you've read Hebrews and you've mm-hmm. read Psalm right. Psalms. And those two are connected explicitly connected um, in the text. So I would just encourage you to not think, oh, I don't have a degree. I can't I can't read the Bible because I don't have the library or anything like that. You have the Bible. And if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the tools necessary. And if you uh, read slowly and just observe and then ask, the, ask those questions that Scott just mentioned, um, I think you'll get a long way. Yeah, and pay attention to your own context because mm-hmm. your own context is what makes you you know, veer toward the ditch, just like you're driving with the one tire that's low right. and it pulls you over and you can stay out of the ditch, but you have to drive a little differently mm-hmm. because you know, you've got that low tire. And the same thing is true with, you know, your Bible interpretation, I think. Right. 
Well, that is good for today. We'll, we'll go on to part two. Who knows? Maybe part three. Who could say? Uh, but until part two, uh, I know you all want it. So don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review goes a long way to getting this to other people. Share it with a friend. Uh, if you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. And we look forward to the next conversation. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry.